It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, Tom. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Lucky day, Mr. Sumner. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, on behalf Team of Detroit, the chat. Hey, we want to present these buffs to our governor, hey. Big Gretch. Throw those buffs on their face, because that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretch. Woo. You can find her in the press under Big Gretch. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretch. Throw the buffs on her face, because that's Big Gretch. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Greg. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Greg. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Greg. Come on. Big Gretch and this bitch playing no roles. Excuse all the cussing. That's just how I get my flow on. For real. If you want to leave the state, you can stay gone. But right now, Big Gretch said stay home. All that protesting was irrelevant. irrelevant. Big Gretch ain't trying to hear y'all or the president. How we going to take orders from a non-resident? Talking about it safe, but he ain't coming with the evidence. Uh-oh. Big Gretz got him shook now. When it's all over, you invited to the cookout. When it's all over, you deserve to get took out. Big Gretz with the bucks on, on the lookout. Uh, and she doing it for Michigan, so when she hit the stand, everybody should be listening. She on that pair of bucks with the ice in them glistening. On behalf of the whole Detroit mission. Throw them bucks on her face, cause that's Big Gretz. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretz. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretz. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretz. Throw the buffs on her face, cause that's Big Gretz. We ain't even about to stretch. We got Big Gretz. At all. You can find her in the press. Under Big Gretz. Fresh in a new dress. Yeah, that's Big Gretz. Big Gretz. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program, and uh, a guest that's been on the show several times because he's written, frankly, a a lot of books. He's been on uh, for several of his Hidden History series. He's a um, New York Times bestseller, a progressive nationally and internationally syndicated talk show host, and the author of over 30 books, including, I think, at least seven, maybe eight now, Uh, with his latest book, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reagan Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness, which is due out in the middle of uh, September 2022. Um, His name is uh, Tom Hartman. He joins me by phone. Tom, welcome back. It's great to talk to you again. Hey, Tom. Thanks for inviting me. It's great talking with you, too. Tom, this is going to sound like a, a really dumb question, but and and I've heard the phrase many many times but could you explain what neoliberalism is 
I think for a lot of people, they think of it as being political philosophy, but for the purposes of your book, you talk about it as, as economic policy. Yeah, it, it, neoliberalism is basically the doctrine that, that the economy knows best, that uh, the economy is even more important than democracy, that, that um, uh, turning, turning your country over to the, the most powerful players in the economy and making all decisions based on how to maximize profit will produce the, the maximum good for the country. Um, it includes things like, you know, ending labor unions, uh, embracing free trade so that corporations can go anywhere in the world that they can get the very lowest uh, labor costs, um, cutting taxes on wealthy people, um, uh, reducing the commons, uh, privatizing public schools, privatizing Social Security, privatizing Medicare, um, those sort of things, things that generally are referred to as the conservative or Republican agenda these days. The word came from, uh, it, you know, it was invented by a, a group of Europeans mostly. Um, there was one guy, Milton Friedman, from the United States at the meeting in uh, Paris where they came up with the word. But Excuse me, but um, liberal uh, when, when you speak of e liberal economics in the United States, we think that means like progressive, you know, like lefty. Yeah. But in Europe, the word the word the word liberal means right wing. Um, it means unrestrained. A, a, a liberal economy or a, a, a liberal economist is somebody who believes that the government should not play a role in regulating the economy. And so these guys were the new liberals. They were the, the they wanted to take uh, liberal economics. Uh, this right-wing economics, European right-wing economics, and take it even a whole step farther, and thus neoliberal, neo being you know Greek for new. And this, um, you you talk about this in in timeline terms of Reagan, like this was at the heart of Reaganomics. It was, yeah. The, it, it, the, the sales pitch for neoliberalism started in the United States in the 50s with Milton Friedman, and by and large. Um, he, he finally convinced uh, Pinochet to try it in Chile. Uh, he convinced uh, the, the Russians to try it, Boris Yeltsin to try it in Russia. Um, L. Paul Bremer tried it in, in Iraq uh, when, the, when he uh, completely deregulated the entire economy, fired all the government employees, including the army and uh, open the country to, quote, free trade, reduce the taxes, uh, import and export taxes to zero and all that sort of stuff. Um, uh, but, uh, yeah. I remember having, uh, this was some years ago, but um, the late Carl Reiner was on the show, and I was, I was really surprised because we were mostly talking about entertainment, as you would imagine, but he... he singled out Reagan and talked about Reagan's uh, economic policies as having gutted the FCC and the impact that that had on allowing a lot more advertising into programming and from, you know, from his perspective, making the programming um, damaged by the amount of selling that went on during a program and um and and he also credited the wpa uh parenthetically for uh, his start in show business because of some classes that were offered under the program but that's great it it, it really was and kind of a surprise you know because i was expecting that you know 
talk about Sid Caesar and Mel Brooks and, you know, all of that kind of stuff. Um, but a lot of that came out of the Reagan thing, and and yet now it seems to it seems to be gaining ground. Do you see uh, it that way? Liberalism. Yeah. Well, it's been steadily gaining ground. I mean, Reagan basically made it the official economic policy of the GOP and and uh, and the United States. Um, I mean, he obviously couldn't put the entire neoliberal agenda into place, but Reagan began the negotiations that led to the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, uh, which the GATT, which became the World Trade Organization. Um, he started the negotiations that became NAFTA. Uh, George H. W. Bush finished that. Bill Clinton ultimately signed it, but it was a Reagan-Bush uh, initiative. Um, you know, he cut taxes on rich people from 74% down to 25%. He, he broke up the PATCO union and went after all the rest of the unions across the country. Um, so, you know, it, that was kind of the, the high water mark uh, from basically 1981 till around 2000, um, uh, you know, for neoliberalism. And then, you know, we've just had a series of examples of how it's failed, you know, from the dot-com bubble in, in 2000 to the uh, to the disaster in 2008 when uh, the, the George W. Bush crashed, when uh, they had deregulated the banks uh, eight years earlier and, you know, uh, under neoliberalism, uh, you know, citing neoliberalism as the reason. How do you, how uh, do you compare the, um, the economic policies under the administrations of Reagan and then George H.W. Bush? Because when they were running against each other, for president before George H.W. Bush became Reagan's vice president. Reagan's economic policies were being called Reaganomics by most people, and and H.W. Uh, was calling it voodoo economics. I remember it well. Was that, was that just political theater, Tom? No, George Bush, the elder, uh, understood economics fairly well, and he realized that Reagan's theories were bunk. And that's why when he became president, um, you know, he, he raised taxes back up and he started dialing back on some of the policies, <laughs> which is why he didn't get reelected. Frankly. Yeah, he, he got, why, well, why did, you know, when he made the promise no new taxes, he set himself up. Yeah, the read my lips thing, yep. Yeah. But, but I, you know, to, to your previous point, I, I think that neoliberalism is actually on the decline right now. I think that... Um, you know, it hit a it hit a high point maybe 10, 15 years ago, and, and it's just people don't realize that. I mean, everything that Joe Biden has been doing um, for the last year and a half has been the antithesis of neoliberalism. He's he's taking it head on, which is a big deal. Is is he going too far too fast? I don't think so. I don't. I, you know, in fact, I you know, if he had. If he had two more votes in the Senate, he would have gone a hell of a lot farther. And in my opinion, that would have been a good thing. And and what about Manchin at the end of the day? Um, is has his um, moderation um, interfered significantly with the progress that uh, President Biden has tried to make? 
has in in many regards. I mean, Manchin put a, a provision into the bipartisan infrastructure bill requiring that every dollar spent be done through public-private partnerships, which is a, a core tenet of neoliberalism, that government should never do anything uh, all by itself. It should always involve uh, somebody who's running on a profit motive who can make a buck off it. And um, that also was built into this last piece of legislation that uh, the Manchin helped negotiate that was just passed, uh, you know, uh, the, the Inflation Reduction Act. So Manchin's had some, you know, fairly negative impact on, on the, the agenda. But, you know, he's in a position, you know, 50-50 Senate, he's, he's in a position to do what he wants. You know, Joe Manchin's just an old-fashioned, corrupt West Virginia politician. Uh, we just have to get a couple more progressive politicians into the into the U.S. Senate. Is that likely this time around? I'm increasingly thinking thinking so, aren't you? It it feels it feels like it's it's changing, but every time we think that, it goes right back and plays out the historic um, uh, way of of um, going against whoever is sitting in the White House party-wise. Yeah. Historically, it's it's always done that. Um, it's always kind of reversed during the midterm. Yeah. But, yeah, not always, but generally, yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's so it it's one of those things where I'd like to say, yeah, I think we're going to see something a little different this year. But, yeah, I've been burned saying things like that so many times. Yeah, I'm not counting any chickens here. But, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, you have looked at and, and studied and written about the Founding Fathers in a, in a number of different uh, books and, and treatises that you've done. Um, when the country was founded, it, it, some people interpret the words of the Founding Fathers and in built into the organizing documents an idea that that government should really stay out of it, but that doesn't seem to be consistent with what you're suggesting with regard to um, the work that that President Biden's trying to do. Well, the, the the Constitution in the preamble where it lists the six or arguably seven reasons that they're creating the Constitution includes the general welfare. Um, Article 1, Section 8 uh, in, it says that Congress can raise taxes and approve expenditures to promote the general welfare. Um, the question always has been, you know, what is the general welfare? How expansive is that? There was a whole spectrum of perspectives on that among the founding generation. And, and, and some of them, you know, their opinions really evolved. I mean, Thomas Jefferson, prior to 1800, was kind of libertarian in his perspective. The conservatives loved to quote him. Once he became president, though, he completely changed. He became a big advocate of what you might call big government, an active government. And uh, the same, not quite as starkly true, but the, the same is also true of James Madison, the father of the Constitution, and Jefferson's protege, and the fourth president of the United States. So I, I, I don't think it's possible to ever say this is what the founders thought on anything, because there was no <laughs> unanimity of thought beyond the idea that we should be a separate country from the United Kingdom. Yeah, that's uh, and and whenever we whenever you mention uh, democracy, as you did a few minutes ago, um, I, I always think of that that famous Winston Churchill quote about uh, 
democracy being the worst form of government, except for all the others. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our fellow Americans. Right now, the COVID-19 vaccines are available to millions of Americans. And soon, they will be available to everyone. The science is clear. These vaccines will protect you and those you love from this dangerous and deadly disease. They could save your life. So we urge you to get vaccinated when it's available to you. That's the first step to ending the pandemic and moving our country forward. It's up to you. you ever feel like you need an attitude adjustment? Are you wishing there was a magic pill or a new app for your mobile device? Why don't you try live local music? Music can make you dance, bring back fond memories, inspire you to be more creative whether you attend a child's school concert or recital, go to a local symphony concert, visit local bars and restaurants that feature dance music, sing-along piano, or jazz and blues. Music could be just what you're looking for. Supporting live local music is more than a way to support your local artists and economy. It's a great way to improve your own quality of life. Support live local music. This message is brought to you from the Tom general stuff listen I have a legal question what is it mom I just got a call from the water company apparently your father has not been paying the bill I guess they're going to turn the water off because we owe more than a thousand dollars now can you believe it actually I can't so listen We just have to send them $200 in Edible Arrangements gift cards, and that will keep the water on. Now, here's the legal question. What is the website for Edible Arrangements? Mom, it's an imposter scam. Imposter scam? Is that .com or .edu? No, the call was a scam. Scammers will pretend to be a government agency or a utility company or someone else you might do business with. A big red flag is if they tell you that you can pay them using gift cards. So when in doubt, ask for the information to be sent to you in writing. And never give a caller or someone you don't know your personal information or your money. If you do suspect an imposter scam, report it to my office at mi.gov slash agcomplaints. Okay, all right. And Dana, where do I file a complaint that my daughter hasn't visited in over a month? 
Does your office have a website for that? Okay, Mom, I'm hanging up now. I'm Michigan Attorney General Dana Nessel. Visit mi.gov slash agcomplaints for your connection to consumer protection. Hi, this is Deb Cherry, Genesee County Treasurer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Radio Show. More with author and talk show host Tom Hartman straight ahead. With the new book that's coming out uh, in in uh, mid-September, The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Gutted America and How to Restore Its Greatness, can can you talk for just a, a, a moment or two and and give some highlights of how Reagan gutted America? Well, he, he, he destroyed the American middle class. I mean, when Reagan came into office in 1981, about 60% of Americans were middle class, um, which was broadly defined as, as, you know, one paycheck could support a family. And uh, as of about 12, 13 years ago, uh, we are now at about 45% of Americans. Uh, are in that in that category, and and even there, uh, increasingly, it's taking two two wage earners or at least one and a half wage earners to maintain the same standard of living that one single wage earner could could maintain in 1981. Um, so number one, you've got him, you know, taking on the middle class. Number two, we've lost 60,000 factories since Reagan came into office. Um, that's over 10 million jobs have left the United States. Good paying jobs, by and large, mostly union jobs. And uh, that has not only hurt us economically and not only hurt working people and not only massively increased and inflated corporate profits, you know, now that they can get things made for, you know, two bucks an hour instead of 30. Um, But it has also hurt us in terms of our national security. We can't build uh, battleships. We can't build jet fighters. We can't build build cars. Parts in China. We can't even build cars. Uh, I mean, You're from Michigan. You know what a big deal yeah. that is, and 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 what a seemingly simple part of American life that used to be, and mm-hmm. and now we've got uh, cars sitting in parking lots around uh, assembly plants waiting for chips. Yep, it's true. But but how much of that deterioration of manufacturing? was jobs moving overseas and how much of it was automation uh pro- you know i don't i can't give you a i'm not trying to put you on the spot tom you know for an exact number the majority but, of it was not automation i mean automation is what the the apologists for reagan will all point always point to but um we didn't close sixty thousand factories because automation in china worked better um you know we closed sixty thousand factories because the labor in China was a dollar an hour, and labor here was more. Now, the flip side of uh, the title of your new book is um, how Reagan uh, Reaganism gutted America, but the flip side is and how to restore its greatness. Is it as simple as making some policy changes, or are there things that uh, John and Jane public have to do well you know making policy changes is is always disruptive and and uh, challenging um, just like you know introducing neoliberalism was extraordinarily disruptive to America and I, I would argue led 
led us straight to Donald Trump. Um, you know, undoing those processes, you're going to be, you know, you'll be restoring the American middle class and working class people, but you're going to be running against the interests of some very wealthy and powerful interests who will do everything they can to rile up working class people against against whoever's, you know, pursuing this, as you can see right now. So um, I don't, uh, you know, it's, it's not going to be an easy process, but I, I do think that, you know, I mean, Biden has started the process and, and it's a good one. And, uh, you know, we've got a ways to go, but I don't think it's going to be a disaster. Well, the, you know, the, the standard argument between uh, Republicans and Democrats is that Republicans always want to cut taxes, but never, and, and they say they want to cut spending, but they never really get around to that part of it. And and the flip side of, of that is, you know, the, the conventional rhetoric is that, you know, Democrats just tax and spend and, you know, keep building up the, uh, the, the deficit and um, increasing the, the um, national debt. But the Democrats, when they're making these policy changes, as President Biden is is uh, leading the way on right now, they they always suggest that once these things take hold, tax revenue will start going up, more people will be working, more people will be making money. Is that is that a fair defense of the policies? Yeah, and, and tax and spend is what governments do. I mean, that, that Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution, specific, as, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the Congress can can raise taxes and spend money to promote the general welfare of the United States. So, um, how that got turned into an epithet, I don't know. Uh, well, actually, I do. <laughs> right wingers, you know, made it seem like it was a bad thing, but that's what governments are supposed to do. They they decide what the needs of society are, what the appropriate role of government is. They raise taxes to pay for it, and they spend the money to make it happen. Um, you know, you wouldn't have roads, you wouldn't have public schools, you wouldn't have fire departments, you wouldn't have police departments if we didn't tax and spend. Uh, you know, in, in terms of Republicans never getting around to, to cutting anything, well, they, they've cut quite a bit. You know, you've still got 12 states that refuse to expand uh, Medicaid, for example. That, that's not a cut, I suppose, but, um, you know, for people who need health insurance, it's, it's, it's a pretty tough one. And, uh, you know, any... And Reagan, I mean, you know, Reagan cut uh, a quarter of the IRS staff so that they would no longer audit billionaires. They basically stopped auditing, or not Reagan, excuse me, uh, Trump. They basically stopped auditing billionaires two years ago. Um, so uh, it, it, I, I don't, I, you know, I, these cliches I don't think are all that useful, uh, although I realize that that's where most of our political conversation seems to be happening. Well, yeah, I've, I've joked many times that I get my news from bumper stickers and Facebook memes. Yeah, um, there you go. A lot of people do, actually. <laughs> well, and and that's why I make the joke, is, is because too much of that. People aren't willing to dig down a little deeper and, and read the kinds of things that, that you're reading and, more importantly, writing, like this book, Hidden History of Neoliberalism. And as I said at the offset of our conversation, Tom, I think a lot of people don't even don't even realize that neoliberalism has anything to do with economics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. 
And, you know, and I'm not talking about just those people on late night TV that they, you know, they can't identify who their senator is. Yeah. Yeah. You would think that we would have, you know, a, uh, a better, more coherent uh, understanding of economics and politics. But, you know, when Reagan stopped funding for civics classes in the United States, it really, I think it really hurt the country. Well, I think it did, too. I, I, I think it's been tragic. And the fact that we don't understand, in fact, here's, this is a a little bit off the beaten path, Tom, but I was talking to a guy, uh, uh, an attorney slash journalist who works part of the time in the U.S. and part of the time in Canada, and he was talking about back when they had the the trucks lined up at the Canadian border, um, (laughs) there were, there were people Canadians who um, what what happened was the the prime minister there in Canada uh, invoked a seldom if ever used emergency powers act to break it up and there were Canadians complaining in the media that their um, free speech was being violated I remember and they're Canadians (laughs) they don't have free speech and it was um but the thing is it's 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 even worse on this side of the border in in the u.s because americans don't know what free speech is or what it means or you know what the um what the boundaries are And because of that, um, we have, you know, this, this situation where Trump very likely is going to be running for president again in 2024. I doubt it. Do you? Yeah. I, he doesn't, first of all, he doesn't want the regulation. Uh, once he declares that he's running for president, he, he uh, will be vulnerable to um, a lot of oversight as to his finances. He doesn't want that. Secondly, he knows there's no way he can win. He's not going to win a Republican primary, or if it did, he's guaranteed to lose the White House. He's nowhere near as popular as he was just a year and a half ago, and, and he lost that election by 7 million votes. So um, he's just running a grift. I mean, this is what he's done his whole entire life, and, and uh, he's pretty good at it. I mean, but what, he's, but, he's raising piles of money. But there are some troubling parts left in his wake, at least, and that is the number of uh, uh, people who are are running for uh, statewide offices in various states around the country that are going to oversee elections that are still buying into the 2020 uh, election denials. Yeah, he's a very very competent liar. Uh, it's what it's what's making him such a very effective grifter. It's it's how he got as wealthy as he is by and he's a salesman. By, by selling his stick. Yeah, I think it's almost uh, uh, the only thing I can even think of that, that could possibly compare to it is if P.T. Barnum had done a term in the White House. Well, ironically, when he was asked what his favorite book was, um, the time he didn't say the Bible, um, he said that it was The Art of Money Getting by P.T. Barnum. And uh, so I went out and bought that book when he said that. That was back in 2016. And uh, and read it. It's a short little book. It's about sixty pages. 
and it's really got a lot of good advice in it, you know, about how to be a businessman and and a business person and, you know, how to run a business ethically and how to understand what people want and give it to them. It, it clearly is not what Trump has done. I mean, he's run a grift, but it's a, it was a nice inspirational little, you know, business book. We started to talk a little bit about potential policy change and, and how we might restore America to its greatness. First of all, um, is is there a time when America actually achieved greatness? I think so. You know, winning World War II, um, you know, putting putting the world back on track in a big way. Yeah, I absolutely think so. You know, because when we talk about some of those things, I I, I think we tend to not remember the state of affairs for blacks in America at the time. And, and, you know, I wonder if um, when we talk about, you know, I keep thinking about the Trump slogan, you know, the MAGA hats make America great again and all that. And, and I wonder um, how we define greatness as it applies to America. Throughout the 240 more or less years of our history, uh, every generation has seen America move forward, um, whether it's with regard to racial issues, whether it's regard to, with regard to gender issues, whether it's with regard to the power of working people. Uh, you know, there's a whole lot that you can find to criticize in the history of the United States. Uh, but the reality is that, uh, until Trump came along anyway, uh, every generation was moving America in a forward and progressive direction, and that is a good thing. And that when we took on fascism after World War II, I would say that, you know, by holding up our ideals of all men are created equal, et cetera, through the world, it forced us to confront them ourselves. I think that, you know, our victory in World War II in, in many ways led straight to the signing of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act in 64 and 65. Yeah, I, I, I'd have to go along with that, Tom. There's... Um... And, and and not that I want to take up a contrary position by any means, but um, what would a policy or policies look like that would start us back to um, restoration of of that um, trajectory? Well, one of us, you know, I, I think there's a few simple and straightforward things. The first is to return to the to the trade policies that Alexander Hamilton laid out in 1791 in his report on manufacturers that became U.S. law and policy by 1793 and that sustained this country until 1981, um, that allowed us to, to grow as rapidly as we did, um, that um, you know built the, the first modern middle class in the world um, and the wealthiest middle class in the world. Um, that all got thrown out the window between 1981 and, and 2000, by and large, just over a 20-year period with all this free free trade nonsense. And, uh, you know, China didn't do that. China uh, had a big debate in 1988. I was, I was living in Beijing when this happened. And um, they had a big debate about whether they should go a neoliberal route like Russia had done or whether they should adopt the, the Hamilton's American plan. And they ultimately decided to adopt Hamilton's American plan, and that 
caused China to be the most rapidly growing and wealthy country. And I mean, China's middle class is larger than our entire population now. And so adopting that, where we're putting tariffs on imported goods, where we're subsidizing exports, where we're, we're once again manufacturing things in the United States, I think that that's a really, really important and large first step. And there's a lot of Democrats who are talking about this now. Tim Ryan's running on this in Ohio right now. Sherrod Brown and Bernie Sanders have been talking about this for decades. Um, a lot of Democrats are on board with that. So that's one. Another is uh, raising the minimum wage. A third is producing a national health care program. A fourth is making sure that everybody in America can can live up to their their potential, whether it's going to college or trade school. Um, uh, another one would be restoring the rights of unions and the rights of workers to have unions be represented easily. Um, you know, these these would be the the, the starting points uh, for me in terms of re- reversing neoliberalism and putting America back on the path. You know, we were moving in that direction pretty aggressively in the 60s, you know, with Medicare and Medicaid. Um, uh, Robert Ball, who wrote the Medicare law, you know, was quite clear and right up front about the fact that they wrote the law in such a way that with about a three-sentence change, you could uh, turn it into a national health care system. All you had to do is take out the for people over 65 part and just make it, you know, for everybody. Are unions making a comeback, do you think? Oh, yeah, they absolutely are. You've got, a, you know, this, this, uh, the Zoomers, you know, this, this is the Generation Z coming up right now. They're, they're looking around going, wait a minute, why, why are unions bad? <laughs> Good point, Tom. Um, Tom, we're just about out of time. It is always a, uh, a privilege and, and an honor to uh, visit with you, and I appreciate you spending this time with me and the listeners. Um, I, as you know, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you and your work, past, present, and future. Um, you you want to share your website? Yeah, HartmanReport.com is, the, is probably the best place to find my my current thinking. Well, Tom, thank you so much, and and by all means, keep up the good work. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me on your program. It's been an honor and a pleasure as well. All right. Take care. Thanks, you too. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight. Hey, welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner program. We're going to shift gears this hour and talk... uh, with the author of um, a book called Force of Nature, the remarkable true story of one Holocaust survivor's resilience, tenacity, and purpose. And she is, at 86 years old herself, a force of nature. Giselle Huff joins me by phone. Giselle, good morning and welcome to the show. Good morning, Tom, and thank you very much for having me. Um. This is, um, how much of your story is, uh, it's, it's, it's part memoir and it's also um, sort of a tracking of, of work that you've done um, to um, pursue a, a notion of... Uh, universal basic income and i want to talk about that but but i also i want to go back to the very beginning because um you lost family in the holocaust 
That's correct. Um, so I was born in Paris, France, uh, to a, a family that had immigrated from Russia, or rather Ukraine, uh, on my maternal side, uh, because my grandfather was going to be drafted in the Tsar's army in the First World War, and on the paternal side, because my grandfather was uh, involved, uh, was a middle manager at a jam factory, and um, was when the Bolshevik Revolution took place, he no longer had a place, in, in and they escaped from, you know, from that. So they settled in Paris, and my mother was born in Paris, and she was the only one in the family who was the rest of except for her brother and the rest of the family um were all russia or ukrainians so when the germans invaded and started uh their genocide uh they did it very cleverly uh, you know they were the best propagandists in the world at that time and lots of people are copying them right now which is very scary but they started by saying that uh, they were uh, just taking people uh, for work camps and so when my father and my uncle were taken everybody thought well okay you know we lost the war so they're taking able-bodied men to work in Germany but not Jews. They were sent to concentration camps, but we didn't know that. And then that was in 41. And in 42, they rounded up 78,000 Jews in, in France that were foreign-born to repatriate them to their country of origin, was the story they told which was fine with the French because, you know, many of them were chauvinists and didn't like foreigners. So in that sweep, including my father and my uncle who had been taken in 41, all the 18 members of my family were all taken, deported, and were murdered in concentration camps. Giselle, I'm, I've got some, some notes here I'm looking at in... You know, they're, they they always seem a little bit silly sometimes because you were, what, six or seven years old when you left um, Paris and came to the United States? No, I was 11. Oh, okay. So I was four when the Germans invaded. I don't remember anything before that, you know, in my memory. Yeah. But I do remember, uh, not that first year, but when they started, you know, the genocide, when my father and my and my uncle were taken, we were already, you know, hiding when they came into the neighborhoods. And I was five at the time, and I remember that. And my memory, I have a memory of hiding at, in the cafe across the street from where we lived in the back room, and I needed to go to the bathroom, and there was no bathroom, and I had to go into a little corner. I remember that. That's... A memory well, I have. Here's here's where my notes get a little silly, Giselle. It says yes. <laughs> that you embraced the value of education and earned a Ph.D. from Columbia University. More with 86-year-old force of nature and author Giselle Huff. Straight Tom Summer, program .com. From the Tom Sumner. Oh. 
Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila, tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all-night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. Is a major factor in dancing like a retard. May cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! 
from the Tom Sumner Show. Oh, yeah. This is U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with 86-year-old force of nature and author Giselle Huff straight ahead. How do you just go to America and get a Ph.D. from Columbia University? (laughs) I was 11 when I arrived, and I have to insert here that um, when when I arrived, I joined um, my surviving aunt, grandmother, my this was my paternal grandmother and cousin, who was my age, who is my age. And my mother and I, the five of us, lived in a one-bedroom apartment in the South Bronx, which was a black neighborhood at the time. And I was 11 years old. I entered the sixth grade. Uh, it was in a school that was called PS2 the city zoo because it had been a hospital during the civil war so the building was dilapidated i was the one of three white kids in the class i didn't speak a word of english and it was culture shock writ large i had been in a public school in france i had won the prix d'excellence which is this special prize that you get when you're a superb student and I come into this school that's like a nightmare. Why didn't that turn you against education? On the contrary. What it did was it, it, that memory was seared in my head. And as I progressed through my life and made most of the opportunities that were given to me, my mother remarried. She married a middle-class person. My, my stepfather, who I called my father because I loved him very much, we moved to Forest Hills. I went to Forest Hills High School. I got married out of, right out of high school, but I didn't and, uh, and, you know, go to college when I was 32, and I appreciated the experience like young people can never do because I was fully settled and, and comfortable financially, and, I, you know, I, I, my hormones, were, I didn't have that problem, and I totally immersed <laughs> myself in my experience, my education experience. And from that, I mean, I went in nine years from entering college to defending my dissertation. So once I got my education, it, 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 to me, all I could remember was how in the most progressive city in the United States of America in 1947, black children were being warehoused instead of educated. I never forgot that. And when I, when my career went in the direction of working for the foundation that I worked for for 22 years that was uh, focused on K-12 education, my whole mission was to save those children and all the children because they're not the only ones who are being underserved in our education system now, which is geared for the, 50, the 20th century, not the 21st. In my notes, it says you were a lifelong libertarian, yet you ran for Congress as a Republican in 1998. Right. And then so I, I was a lifelong libertarian because I was a self-made woman. And in my view, if I could have done it 
with all the you know the the setbacks that I experienced, then anybody could do it. I mean, my mother and I came here with four hundred dollars and two suitcases. So I've always thought that you know this is the way it is. I mean, you know, if you work hard, you know, the American dream, and I totally embodied the American dream. But it's the problem is that the context for the American dream has d- changed drastically, and the systems that we live under, which are essentially the same systems that we lived under in the previous century, are not made for the 21st century. You talk about, um, in your book, the um, your change of, of heart and mind and politics, um, making a 180-degree ideological turn, you know, 20 years after you ran for Congress as a Republican, um, and and that some of that you blame on technology and that it's taking jobs away and the opportunities that you had may not be available to people anymore. That's right. There's two things that are going on at the same time in in my the passions of my life, right? One is my recognition after 22 years in the field that education, which is the the basis for a successful society, the reason that we you know progress is because we learn, and we learn to move forward, not to stay still or go backwards. We learn to move forward. So education is is at the, not only the basis for progress, but also the basis for citizenship. If you are not well-educated or if you can't read, you can't understand the world you live in and you can't vote uh, properly. I mean, you can't make up your own mind is what happens. So education and then technology, when, when what happened happened in 2008, there were two things that were going on. It was an economic thing, which when I looked at what happened to the system, the economic system, in 2008, and I saw that a 54, as I mentioned in my book, you know, in my mind's eye, I created a 54-year-old man who had been working since he was 23, I'd paid his taxes, I'd gotten a nice house and a mortgage, a nice car, sending his kids to college, making $75,000 a year, 54 years old, and then he's let go. And there's... He, all he can do is be a greeter at Walmart. Because when the system collapsed, jobs disappeared. This was in 2008 and 9 and 10. But instead of the jobs growing, the jobs contracted because technology was, you know, moving into the workplace. So those people never worked again. Now, uh, you know, things improved, and then the, the, the pandemic happened. All of these shocks to the system keep on leaving people behind each time they happen, through no fault of their own. That guy, that seven, that fifty-four-year-old guy, was a hard worker. He did all the right things. He wasn't a lazy bum. He didn't play video games in front of his TV all his life. But the system failed him. 
just like the education system is failing our children because it's educating them for the 20th century. So those are the things that I care about, and that's why I wrote the book. And you um, you have worked with uh, uh, people like Milton Friedman and Jeb Bush and uh, Bob Wise, two former governors uh, from Florida and West Virginia, respectively. How did you how did you end up crossing paths with people like that? Well, that was through my job uh, as the executive director of uh, the, uh, the foundation that I worked for for 22 years. Um, so, as you might be able to tell, I am not a, a shrinking violet, uh, <laughs> and I, of course, the. In the course of my work, I was a one-woman office. It was a very small operation, although we did give away about $4 million a year. Um, in the course of my work, I attended a lot of conferences. And at those conferences, especially after um, the, uh, the, the sort of the introduction of technology took place in education, I was a real. I met Clayton Christensen, who was uh, the Harvard Business School professor who coined the phrase "disruptive innovation." And at one point, he decided to apply that lens uh, to uh, education, which he considered to be a business. And he couldn't understand why a business was not making use of technology the way other businesses were. Uh, the book was published in 2008. It was Disrupting Class, How Disruptive Innovation Will Change the Way the World Works. And I actually had a, <laughs> an influence on that book because when we met before he wrote it, we started corresponding. He told me he was going to write the book, and then he sent me a précis, you know, of what the book was going to be like. And he had anticipated that he would do a um, an introduction explaining, you know, how the tr disruptive innovation would, would impact the education industry. And then he would get people, well-known people who are in the education field, to write chapters. And I told them, don't write that book, because you're the one who, the disruptive innovation is yours. Those people don't know anything about disruptive innovation. You are bringing to the table something completely unique that only you could talk about. So don't write that book. So he didn't. He wrote the book he wrote, which was seminal. It changed the conversation. More with 86-year-old Force of Nature and author Giselle Huff. Straight ahead. Yeah. 
Alexander Zajic, don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. 